listening to an episode of The Rewind, a podcast series by the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This episode features audio from our event on October 12th, 2023. This was an event titled Citizens of the World, Global Citizenship in U.S. Foreign Relations. It featured a panel with moderator Christopher McKnight-Nichols and then panelists Polly Divin, Jeffrey Engel, and Emily Conroy-Kritz. And if you haven't already, Chris, Polly, and Emily did off-the-stage podcast episodes, so make sure you listen to those. And of course, I might be biased since I host that podcast, but they are really great episodes, and I had an amazing time talking to each of them individually. Lastly, if you want to read more about the event, find all the links to the interviews in one place, and see photos from the event, go to gvsu.edu slash hc slash global citizenship, which is linked in the description below. All right, enjoy the rewind. I would now like to introduce our moderator for tonight's event. Christopher McKnight Nichols is Professor of History and Wayne Woodrow Hayes Chair in National Security Studies at The Ohio State University. He specializes in the history of the United States and its relationship to the rest of the world, with a focus on ideas, particularly isolationism, internationalism, and globalization. He is also an active public commentator, author or editor of six books, and is a staunch advocate for history and the humanities. Take it away, Chris. Thanks so much, Essie. That was great. Thank you, Kaylor, and thank you, Megan, and the whole team here at the Howenstein Center and at GVSU. Um, we've got three great panelists uh, here with me who I will briefly introduce, then we will jump into the deep end of conversation. There is so much to uh, deal with in the world today and to ground that in a deeper history and context. So uh, to my left is Emily Conroy Krutz. Uh, she's Associate Professor of History at Michigan State University. Uh, I recently taught her first book, uh, Christian Imperialism, Converting the World in the Early American Republic. Uh, which went over great with my graduate students. Uh, and she has a fantastic new book, which I want to ask about a little bit in our uh, conversation uh, on missionary diplomacy out in 2024 from Cornell University Press. So go out and pre-order or however you uh, can do that. Um, so welcome. Thank you. Uh, uh, next up, uh, we have Polly Divin, um, a professor here of political science and director of international relations at Grand Valley State. Uh, her research focuses on the intersection of US domestic politics and foreign policy, and she's particularly interested in how domestic interest groups influence foreign policy. We've been talking a lot about Taiwan and China. Uh, hopefully we can get into that a little bit in our conversation as well. And last but certainly not least is Jeffrey A. Engel. Jeff Engel uh, is, a founding, is the founding director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University, uh, professor in the Clements Department of History uh, at SMU, teaches history, uh, international relations, grand strategy. Um, he's a frequent media commentator, uh, has authored uh, or edited 13 books. Um, I believe the most recent is another one I'm reading with grad students in a few months. Uh, when the World Seemed New, uh, on George H.W. Bush uh, and the sort of immediate pivot point at the end of the Cold War and the transition to a new world order, or was it? And we can get into that a little bit as we uh, talk as well. Very much worth picking up. Um, so uh, without further ado, I will dive us into the conversation. I'm both moderating and doing a little um, panelist duty chiming in. Um, so what we'll do is we're going to start with a few brief remarks. Uh, on some big picture questions, and then we'll try to moor them to more specific, grounded examples as we go. Uh, 
moving basically from questions of core values and assumptions that have guided US foreign policy and in thinking about uh, questions like global citizenship all the way back to the end when we'll engage the question of sort of what is global citizenship. So we'll hold that in reserve kind of as a tease and then we'll get to that at the end and hopefully open up um, our conversation from there. So obviously we live in tumultuous times. Uh, a lot of us have been following the news closely, I imagine, uh, thinking about Gaza, thinking about Ukraine. You know, our hearts go out um, to folks uh, all over the world who are suffering right now, um, and that's important to just ground our conversation in. Um, but it also makes our topics more timely, obviously. Uh, so one of the things that it reminds me, and this is where we started in our conversation earlier today, is uh, about the kind of ideologies that orient U.S. foreign policy and foreign relations, that orient all of us in how we think about um, our proper position in the world, whether that's you as an individual, as Essie was saying, what actions can you take at the local level to make an impact? How about the state level, the national level, and international levels? When you think about the core ideas related to global citizenship, that's what that is about, and we'll engage that later. Um, but in thinking about those ideologies that help us make sense of an infinite world, right, to make the complex finite so that we can understand it, as you track through U.S. history, and we're fortunate to have scholars here of the 19th and 20th centuries, 21st century, um, the main questions uh, really are oriented around what are the core uh, values and assumptions that have guided foreign policy. They obviously haven't been static, no one would argue that, um, but uh, to what extent have there been consistencies that we can think of? And so what we decided to start us out to ground our conversation tonight is to ask each of the panelists sort of what's your view based on your expertise of what have been some of the most important guiding core assumptions or core principles that have shaped U.S. foreign policy. And sometimes those guiding policies or shaping ideas you know, haven't actually uh, had the effect that they intended, right? And that's part of thinking through what those core ideas, core assumptions, core principles are that help to organize a complex world into something finite, AKA policy. Um, so I'll start uh, to my left uh, with uh, Professor Conrad Kratz, and then we'll uh, go straight down the line. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's great to be out here um, and to get out of East Lansing for a little bit. Um, when we talked uh, last week, I think Chris actually asked us to have a provocation to start with. Yes. So I will um, try to be as um, strident as I can, I guess, in this opening bit. Um, one of the things that I think is really key, as you know, Chris was just saying, right? none of these um, overarching policies are static. They're also never... Uh, uniform and we one of the things I think that we need to really bear in mind is the continued contest over what the US should be doing how it should be acting and what its values ought to be um, this has never been something that Americans have been in agreement with they've argued about it from the very very beginning um, but as the 19th century person on the um, up here and as the person who uh, works on foreign missionaries um, most of the time I will start us with uh, one of the major guiding principles of American foreign policy has been um, kind of a vision of the spread of a certain kind of Christianity and a certain kind of civilization. Um, this plays out differently at different times in history, um, and it is certainly not talked about in those terms at various points in history. Um, but one of the things that my work in um, 19th century American foreign missions and their relationship with the State Department in the long 19th century has really made clear to me is that missionaries um, provided um, Sort of Americans with their information about the world in really important ways for a lot of the 19th century, and those connections continued well into the 20th century. 
um, their ideas about what American principles ought to be, what, um, what areas of the world America should be engaging with, um, and in what ways. Um, that has been sort of at the core of a lot of, um, of a lot of the ways that the U.S. has engaged in the rest of the world, how it's defined the kind of humanitarianism that we see emerging and I think kind of growing into this idea of global citizenship. We can talk about more as we go. Um, but I guess my sort of two cents to start us off with is that religious values and a particular kind of religious values are a through line um, for better and for worse um, for much of American history. Do you want me to go next? Sure, please. Hi, everyone. So I am not a historian, and I think a lot about current foreign policy, and I study some of the very sort of nitty-gritty, where are these ideas coming from, and who's steering the ship? And that's kind of where I'm coming from. So I'm going to talk about what I consider to be four primary objectives of foreign policy that we see out there all the time. And I'm going to suggest that really, most foreign policy is the result of at least two or three of those objectives happening at the same time. That there is no one core value, but that we see foreign policy as kind of the amalgam of certain levels of, of people becoming involved and asking for different things. So if you listen to the news, you might think foreign policy is coming from two, or the mainstream news, from two factors. You might think foreign policy is coming from external, right? What happens to us, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's an overthrow of a government or a dictatorship, something like that. And you might also think foreign policy comes from the president, right? Because it seems like everything is attributed to the president as if the president can carry out foreign policy by himself. So far himself, I'll use himself. So what I wanted to suggest, at least in my opening remarks, is that we have to think of foreign policy as more complex than that. And I like to break it into four ways of thinking about foreign policy. Foreign policy based in national security objectives, for sure, right? Keeping our borders safe, keeping our interests pushing forward, not being challenged by other major superpowers or whatever. So national security objectives, which by the way, national security objectives has in recent years been expanded to include things like security from environmental things or, or uh, health challenges. President Biden's the first um, president to put an environmental czar, John Kerry, in his National Security Council. So anyway, so we have national security is one objective. Second objective, the ideological objectives of foreign policy, which are consistent, I think, throughout time but, and always play a role. But we think of them, I think, at least in my world, most prominently during the Cold War when we are fighting these proxy wars, anti-communism, kind of trying to promote what we think of as our core values, whether that's democracy and or sort of economic liberalism, trade liberalization, export promotion, and so forth. Okay, so now I've got national security and ideology. The third category, I would say, is um, humanitarianism. Mm -hmm. I know some people are very skeptical that there's any humanitarian impulse in American foreign policy, but I don't think that's true. I, I worked in foreign aid overseas in Africa for a number of years, and I think there are a lot of people who think that what we're doing is valuable and useful and tries to help other people. And then my fourth category of foreign policy objective is going to be the one that I really in my life delve into the most and I think is maybe the least, well, I just say it, and that is domestic economic objectives. 
things that we are doing overseas to promote the livelihood of our corporation, corporate interests, and our investors at home. And whether that's export promotion, or whether that's selling a lot of weapons overseas, or whether that's ensuring a supply of oil, or ensuring a supply of semiconductors, you know, we have distinct domestic economic objectives that get played out in our foreign policy all the time. So I think what I would just want you to take away is that it's so important to look inside the United States before we ever even begin to think about foreign policy. And right now, I'm not going to get too far ahead of myself, but I am going to say right now, especially, we have some members of Congress who are interfering actively with foreign policy, right? I mean, if you look at the number of military appointments that President Biden's made that haven't been uh, taken up by Congress, it's over 300, including the Secretary of the Navy and the Air Force. And then if you look at ambassadors, people have been pointing out all week, we don't have an ambassador in place, been nominated by the president, but not confirmed. We don't have an ambassador in place in um, Kuwait, Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE. So we have a lot of um, domestic hurdles to carrying out foreign policy as well. So I'm going to leave it at that. I think that's enough to go on. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having us. Thank you, Chris, for the introduction. That was a wonderful uh, leadership moment. In fact, I, we have a presidential center at my campus, and I'm going to steal the leadership moment idea. So thank you to whoever I just stole from. Um, it's, it's great to be here, and, and I'm in this unusual circumstance because uh, I'm sitting next to a political scientist, which makes me a little uncomfortable. But uh, usually political scientists are ones who you know, break things down into categories, and historians want to give you context and make it more complicated. I'm going to try to go in the other direction, to be honest. And I'm going to try to give a, basically a, a history of the United States foreign policy and the key debate within it in less than a minute. Okay. All right. Got time? Okay. All right. And Good go. <laughs> First point, the central question of American foreign policy has always been how much do we engage? How much do we engage the rest of the world? How much do we need to engage? Obviously, geographically, we're far away from most of our peer competitors. Not from the Western Hemisphere, obviously, but from most of our peer competitors. So how much do we really care about what's going on? And throughout most of the 20th century, that has not necessarily been a security issue. That's been more of a question of how much we actually care about what's going on. In World War I, Americans entered that war, you know, not willingly entered that war from their perspective for one of two reasons, either A, because we lent a lot of money to the Allies, or B, because the Germans kept sinking our ships which was inconvenient. Again, in both those cases, not because of anything that we chose, because of something that happened to us. Obviously, World War I ends, I'm never gonna make it in a minute. Obviously, World <laughs> War I ends, uh, and American policymakers pull back, if you will, and then they have to go do it again in World War II. And the key moment, I think, for American policy to understand is actually that moment of decision before World War II. When Americans debated, I think perhaps the most heated debate ever in American foreign policy, or at least 20th century. Uh, no. I was going to say. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, 20th century. You save yourself some time when you skip the first century or so. You do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really care to those internal combustion engine. Um, <laughs> anyway, American foreign policymakers uh, had a debate amongst themselves, and the general public had a debate about how much we should engage the world mm -hmm. in the run up to World War II. 
how much do we care in particular that the Nazi Germany has taken over the rest of Europe? Should this matter? And this is perhaps the most vicious debate of the 20th century, uh, pitting brother against brother, pitting uncle against son, whatever. It's not a pretty picture. But here's the thing. We never answered that debate ourselves. Why? Because on December 6th, it was an active question, 1941. On December 8th, somebody else decided it for us, and we were engaged. Now, you can make the arguments, and I'm perfectly willing to entertain that, that the United States did a whole lot of things to position itself to get into the war in December. But ultimately, most Americans woke up and said, that debate we had yesterday is moot, is irrelevant. And here's the kicker, here's the important part. At the end of World War II, I would argue that in bipartisan fashion, policymakers believed that the lessons they had learned from the first two world wars was that the United States can't leave. When we leave Europeans alone, in particular, they go to war with each other. That's what they do. When we stay, you know what there hasn't been since 1945, since we've had troops stationed in Germany, our troops stationed in Germany? There hasn't been a general European war. The lesson for policymakers is the more you are engaged, even though that's somewhat expensive, it's a lot cheaper and certainly a lot cheaper in terms of lives than actually having to go to war if you were not engaged. Here's the problem. I don't think the general public necessarily came along with those policymaker decisions and conclusions. I would argue that every single administration with the exception of one, I'll get to that in a second, every single administration with the exception of one essentially believed from 1945 till today that narrative I just told you, that if Americans are not engaged, the world will go to hell and we will have to pay the consequences. The problem is the American public did not necessarily buy into that. The American public did not have the same viewpoint as their elite policymakers. The American public asked questions of domestic economy or values or anything else that would say, how is this important to me? How is this important to us? How do I see on Main Street this foreign policy helping me, which was not what the foreign policy elite and intelligentsia was concerned with. So ultimately, the one moment when we might have actually solved this question of what we should be as a nation, we didn't get to solve it ourselves to our own satisfaction. And here's the dirty little asterisk at the end. We had another chance. We had another chance after the Cold War when Americans could reassess what do we want to do within the world? What position should we play? And this was, I think, the great strategic question of the 1990s. And of course, then 9-11 happened. And again, ended the conversation about how America should be engaged. Because whatever you thought about the world on December, excuse me, September 10, 2001, you probably thought a lot differently on September 12th. And not necessarily because of any decision the American people made, because of something that was frankly an exogenous factor. Yeah. Uh, I was like, seven minutes? I don't know. Five minutes. Five minutes. Right, yeah. You said five minutes. Well done. Uh, <clears throat> perfect. Uh, on time for, for, the, for the brief. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I would say, just for our audience in thinking about this and, and to give a slight turn towards the 19th century, two main foreign policy lobbies in US political history. The first, 
1898 and thereafter, the Anti-Imperialist League, arguably the most heterogeneous foreign policy lobby in, in US political history. You have people like W.E.B. Du Bois and Jane Addams and Andrew Carnegie and, and former presidents and sitting senators and uh, all kinds of figures. Um, and, and then the second would be the America First Committee formed in the summer of 1940, ending exactly with Pearl Harbor. And what did they say when they disbanded about a week after Pearl Harbor? We were right. If the US had followed the precepts that we laid out, this attack wouldn't have happened. So I would argue even, even further, uh, to just to embellish Jeff's point, there has been a latent orientation in American public life and, and a broad-based and enduring set of values that are highly skeptical about global engagement, uh, about every form from humanitarian and civilizational uplift to uh, military interventions to, as they would have said in 1898, ruling alien peoples against their will uh, from, all kinds of, from all kinds of positions, deeply racist, anti-racist, uh, from you know, uh, evangelizing positions to, um, to democratic, uh, lowercase r, Republican. There's a whole host of these. Uh, and I think we certainly still live in the shadow of that. The big difference is power. Uh, the, the 19th century, 18th century world was weak. The US was a, you know, a tenuous project. Uh, the question for the U.S. today, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, what changed, the same epical ch shift just happened for Israel. This epical shift, you know, just happened for Ukraine and for Europe. And we don't know how that'll play out. But that, the change in the paradigm and the mindset, very much, you know, like the 9-11 or, or post-Cold post War period, which gets me back to something that connects all of those thoughts with, with what we were just talking about, which is that there's, I think anybody coming in here, if, if you're uh, in favor of US foreign policy, you're skeptical, you've got critiques, whatever, whatever, whatever position you come from, you probably are intimately aware of the mismatch between the political rhetoric of presidents and policymakers uh, and the realities on the ground of how those policies play out across the world but also the realities of how uh, individuals around the world view the US. I mean, the, so the subfield that, that at least three of us, that our non-political science friend, is exempt, uh, that's sometimes called the old diplomatic history, is now called the US and the world. And we think a lot about the reception of ideas abroad and how other peoples and groups think about the US. And that's a big part of that mismatch between rhetoric and reality. American policymakers claim one thing and people around the world see something quite different. So I, I sort of wanted to open that observation up to you all to think a little bit about that. And I'll turn back around and go the other direction. Jeff, since you run a presidential uh, center, study center, um, what do you think about presidential rhetoric and the mismatch uh, with reality? Is there an example or two that you could give where you think um, yeah, it would be illuminating of this. Question. Well, I'll give you a great, I'll give you a, what I think is a great example, mostly because it's what I've been working on these days, uh, <laughs> which is um, the distinction between how American presidents have typically described their enemies overseas and what those enemies actually were. Mm -hmm. Best case example for me is Woodrow Wilson in World War One, in April of 1917, goes to Congress to ask for a declaration of war. And he says, we have no quarrel with the German people. Our fight is with the Kaiser and his evil henchmen. Why did Wilson say this? Well, because about a third of Americans at that time were from, of German descent. So imagine if he had said, we hate the German people, that wouldn't have played well in Texas or Pennsylvania or, by the way, Michigan or Wisconsin. Every single president since, every single one, literally every single one, when sending American troops into combat has said, we have no quarrel with insert enemy people here. Mm -hmm. 
we have no quarrel with the Vietnamese people. We have no quarrel with the Iraqi people. Then again, we have no quarrel with the Iraqi people. We have no quarrel with the Afghani people. Uh, President Biden, just the other day, said we have no quarrel with the Russian people. Uh, in fact, I always like to say that the word quarrel here is really interesting, because I want you to picture for a moment uh, George W. Bush. Uh, how often do you think he used the word quarrel in his normal conversation? Not often. Is he, boy, in Texas, that gets a big laugh. <laughs> boy, okay. Remember Bush? Okay, quarrel, not his style. Mm -hmm. uh, but he used the word, and he used the phrase. And here's the problem, here's the kicker. This, I think, has actually evolved and transformed and morphed the way that we actually conduct our foreign policy so that our foreign policy, especially in times of conflict, is designed to eliminate that evil despot without actually solving the problem. Now, this worked in World War II because we simultaneously took over the country and the despot was gone. But think about what happened in Iraq in 2003. If our major strategic problem was Saddam Hussein, as Bush's rhetoric suggested, once we toppled Saddam Hussein, things should have been great. Mm -hmm. You know how that turned out. By the same token with Vladimir Putin, we've heard any number of American policymakers up to the president suggest that we have no quarrel with the Russian people. Our problem is with Vladimir Putin. Well, I suggest to you that uh, if Vladimir Putin were to disappear tomorrow, that does not solve our problems. Now, I'm not necessarily saying I'm opposed to that outcome, but I do want you to think about the fact that the person who comes next historically is worse. So the enemy you know may not necessarily be the worst thing you can imagine. And it's just a case where this American policymakers use this language, this quarrel language, because they're speaking to a domestic audience. You know, there are Russian Americans, so we can't say we hate the Russian people. Find any country in the world, you can say the same thing for the United States today. So we use this language to appease us domestically, and it winds up warping our strategic war aims. I was going to talk about a couple of examples where the rhetoric may interfere with the reality or mischaracterize the reality. First, I think we have to look at this phrase, America first, right? A great piece of American rhetoric, a politically very charged phrase that really brought people into the Trump campaign or helped people crystallize around something they could really believe in, right? That America's first. I don't know if Trump actually believed that America should be first or whether he was just playing to who he thought was his base by saying America first. But it's a, if you're outside the United States and the United States keep talking, keeps talking about America first, it can be pretty disheartening or pretty worrisome and it makes you wonder. And, and frankly, from my point of view, not only is it a, a, a problematic phrase for our allies to hear, right? or for our friends to hear that we're just always going to be first, but it's also problematic from the American point of view because policies that put us first are not necessarily good for us. And I think that's where maybe it takes a little bit more sophistication, but when President Trump comes into office then in the first month, he starts pulling us out of different agreements, right? Paris Climate Accord, but like even just the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which he took us out of in January uh, 2017, which was just getting started. You know, today we recognize that has been a huge opportunity cost for the United States, right? Like $200 billion, I think the Peterson Institute of Economics says, because we didn't stay in that and we didn't then take advantage of the liberalized markets for our products and that sort of thing. So I would think that your rhetoric, you know, you ought to be really careful what you say, 
potentially if you say something just really cheesy and political like America first, you can just toss that off and not actually run on it, but just say it to, to, to give your base something to chew on and to make them feel good. But it also can be a little dangerous if you try to, try to move forward with that, both in terms of offending your allies and in terms of being bad policy for the country. Um, I could talk more, but maybe I'll leave it there. You want me to do another one? Sure. I got another one more. Give us one more. I got Taiwan up my sleeves here too because let's do it. One of the things that I really, one thing that I've been studying a lot recently is American foreign policy toward Taiwan, and there is no weirder policy when it comes to like the rhetoric versus the reality, right? Because the America, the United States is saying one thing to China. We recognize you as one China. We don't recognize that other country, and so forth, and yet completely turning around and selling billions of dollars of weapons to, China, to Taiwan and having very close relations with Taiwan. We don't have an embassy in Taiwan. We don't have diplomatic recognition with Taiwan. But guess what? We have the American Taiwan Institute with 500 former foreign service officers working at it. Right? The ambassador isn't the ambassador, but she's the director and she used to be an ambassador. But what I'm saying is that there's a lot of two-facedness in this relationship. What uh, President Biden and many presidents before him have called strategic ambiguity, right? Like trying to play both sides of this card. And it's really interesting the more you, you learn about it, the way they're trying to have it both ways. The most interesting example I've heard in recent months is when asked if China were to invade Taiwan, you, Mr. President, would, you, should, would the United States come to Taiwan's aid? And four times in the past year or so, he said yes. But he can't say that. So within 24 hours, either he or his staff members said, oh, no, 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 we wouldn't be able to do that. Right? But he's basically you know, saying this and then pulling it back and saying it and pulling it back in a way that just really brings out, I think, the in interesting nature of how you can be saying one thing and doing another. And I think Taiwan policy is all about that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, um, you know, as Jeff was sort of giving his um, 20th century history of, of U.S. foreign relations, I was thinking about, this is before he was president, but John Quincy Adams, which is very much sort of part and parcel of, of this history of sort of how engaged should we be. Um, and in 1821, one of the things that, that Adams says is, you know, the United States does not go um, abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Um, you know, full stop. That is not something that this country is is interested in doing. And you know, as Chris said, right? That partly there's um, this is the lead up to uh, the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, in part, this is about weakness. Um, in part, this is about um, you know, the U.S. does not have the power to go out and um, slay the monsters of the world, whatever they might be. But you might ask, you know, why is he even saying this in the first place? That's because a lot of Americans very much would like to go out and try and make some changes around the world to problems that they are encountering. And they're using it in the rhetoric that they would use in the 19th century. Is, this is, um, they want to increase civilization. Um, they want to, um, certainly they want to be spreading trade. There's a lot of economic interests in this as well, right? That if we can tra change cultures, we can sort of create a more um, globally connected economy. They were talking about that even uh, in the 18th century and in the 19th century. Um, but they're also talking about values. And one of the things that I, I think we need to, if, we, if we're thinking about so these moments of sort of rhetoric not necessarily matching reality, um, I think the Monroe Doctrine is a place where we can really actually think a little bit about what is, um, 
you know, what exactly is being said, sort of setting aside the ways that the Monroe Doctrine will later be interpreted by later presidents who want to use it again sort of to sort of bulk up um, sort of a justification of, you know, America has always been like this, this has always been our values. Can you, know, you give us a little primer? So a little that? primer there, right, would be, um, so Monroe Doctrine 1823, um, by, by President Monroe, um, but written in large part by his Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, um, and it sets out um, sort of two parts. Um, one is that the United States is not interested in engaging with European conflict. Um, and the second part is that the United States is going to interpret any European attempt to colonize the Americas as, um, I'm blanking on the exact phrasing right now, but that will be um, sort of an infringement of American interests. Um, and it will take, um, the US would take sort of any attempt of a European power to try and colonize Latin America as um, an attack on itself. And in time, those ideas sort of get used as um, sort of creating sort of the American hemisphere where the US is kind of gonna be protective of the Americas and has a sphere of influence over the Americas. And um, you know, if we sort of talk later into the 19th century, if we talk about Theodore Roosevelt, there gets to be like this idea is sort of read back into the 1820s to be, you know, we have always said you know, since, the, since the 1820s, since sort of the aftermath of, of Latin American um, independence movements that the U.S. is going to defend um, and is going to be the sort of prime power in these, this hemisphere. Now in 1823, no. <laughs> uh, the U.S. does not have that kind of power um, at all. And if we look at the, the document, one of the things that really, um, that really stands out to me and um, uh, you know, a lot of scholars have been writing about this um, lately is we, we talk about the Monroe Doctrine largely sort of focusing on that America side. Um, but the Europe side is really, really important. Um, and the Europe side is in part because a lot of Americans are trying to get the US to take a side in the Greek Revolution. Um, American citizens are raising money. Um, they are sending aid. Um, they're doing this through um, both religious organizations and non-religious organizations. Uh, they set up a lot of schools um, after the revolution ends. Um, I have wonderful stories about the wacky consul who, who gets um, arrested several times. He's a missionary. Um, but a lot of Americans are saying this is something that we should care about. Um, you know, we've, um, you know, this is sort of the culmination of an age of revolutions where you can see American values spreading around the world. Look at this, just as we celebrated Latin American independence from, um, from Spain, let us celebrate um, so this movement of Greek and importantly Christians against the Ottoman Empire. And John Quincy Adams does not want the US to touch the 10 foot pole. Um, understandably, it was a, um, a for think about sort of questions of power, questions of economic power, um, questions of military power, right? This is not something that the US should get in, engaged in um, at all. Um, and I can go on at much more depth, um, much more, um, I can prattle on about this for a while. But if we're thinking about sort of these moments where sort of rhetoric and reality where they don't match, right, this is a moment where we have, you know, a secretary of state and then a president sort of saying that, right, here's where U.S. interests lie. We are not going to get engaged in Europe. Um, and we are going to sort of define this interest in the Americas, which in 1823, we have no power to back up whatsoever. Um, 
And they're saying that in part because you have a populist that has a very different vision of what the US should be. Right? So if we're thinking about sort of what the reality is, right, we should be thinking about both that domestic audience as well as international sort of contexts. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, it's a great example. It helps us illuminate the present by looking to the farther past that seems distant and less well known. You could tick through the 19th century, all the times that Americans were deeply sympathetic to causes abroad, and they were not able to get the State Department, such as it was, diplomats, military, the attention of the Secretary of State, much less the President. And, the, and the, some of these, I mean, there's a great scholar named Caitlin Fitz who has this book. It, like, what's an example of this? How much did people uh, appreciate the re revolutions in Central and South America? There was this amazing naming frenzy, mm -hmm. uh, frenzy where lots of people were named Bolivar, uh, children of slaves. Children throughout the South, children in the North, children of immigrants, right? That's the, the kind of sympathy that people yeah. had for these revolutions, and yet they couldn't get the U.S. government to do anything fundamental about that, right? Same with Greece, even though it seemed like a fellow democracy, that this, the cradle of democracy, they would have said then. You can go back, you can go over time to Hungarian revolutionaries in the 1840s, 1850s. You can go up to the 1880s, even when the U.S. is beginning to have a little more power. Uh, and then you can go into the 20th century and see very similar things, right? You, you, we've had lobbies, you know, pro-Palestinian lobbies for my entire lifetime. Um, you know, we've had all kinds of orientations to different sorts of humanitarian causes to, tr to try to do that kind of work. And, you know, part of the rhetoric reality mismatch in some ways is the, is the reality of the rhetoric of non-state actors, individual groups, civil society organizations. I mean, this is why Emily's work is so interesting in some ways, right? Think about churches and mission groups, some of the most dominant forces in society leveraging arguably the most important um, transcendent ideas and values of faith can't make inroads. Every single president in that era would have said that they were a believer, but their churches couldn't get them, potentially, to make some of these moves, right? So that's, it's a fascinating thing to think about our current moment. How much agency do we have? Where do we have agency? Back to Essie's point, sometimes the most agency you have as an individual is within your own community and not in lobbying for what's going on in Greece or somewhere else. Uh, this gets us back around to a question we were thinking about. Um, yes, jump yeah. in real quick on, Go just, for just, it. Uh, sure. on, on one, one additional <laughs> point, just to add on to what you were saying. Um, this phrase, we do not go abroad seeking monsters to destroy, mm -hmm. becomes embedded in the American psyche. I mean, I oh, would yeah. challenge anyone to find a history of the 19th century textbook that doesn't include this phrase. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually the title of my current book, is it really? It is, it's because title. Uh, the title is Seeking Monsters to Destroy. The whole point is, I say, here's this phrase that Americans don't go mon seeking monsters to abroad, but you know what? That's actually what they do. So the central thread, if you will, of 19th century history as it's related to us, of what American foreign policy is, is actually wrong. Yep. But it's a really good line. I mean, he was a good writer. Or I suppose I would argue back, just uh, I know that folks here like a little tension, or I don't know if this is a tension, you're probably going to agree with me, that the, it's very highly selective. Now I'm tense. I'm tense. Who, what, who and what counts as a monster yeah. based yeah. on the moment? So thinking right. about you know, uh, Greek revolution or Hungarian revolution, you know, these aren't allies, uh, fellow travelers, to fight off the monsters. This, mm -hmm. isn't, this isn't a monster situation at all, just to continue that. Whereas in some other cases, it very clearly is configured that way. Yeah, well, I think that that gets to that question of right, ideology, right? It's how are we defining both who are the monsters, uh, to use Adam's language, not mine, um, and how, who are we defining as our friends? Um, and that's really, really key. So the, I mean, the 19th century, I mean, what, what Caitlin Fitz talks about in her um, book, it's Our Sister Republics. It's wonderful. If you haven't read it, um, 
take out your phone right now and order it. It's wonderful. Um, but what she talks about, um, you know, there's um, Maureen Santelli talks about this with Greece, um, and lots and lots of examples. Right? Americans are sort of understanding who are our friends. Our friends are the people who are setting up republics around the world. Um, and there's a certain amount of sort of uh, arrogance to this, that like this is because they are following in our example. Um, there's sort of, Haiti is a really interesting kind of counterpoint to this, um, and Ron Johnson's done some really awesome writing about sort of moments where there was possibility for more diplomatic mm -hmm. engagement um, during the, the first Adams administration. Um, but figuring out, right, how do we say, how do we, who gets to say who our friends are and who our friends are not. And I think one of the points that um, Jeff was making earlier about immigrant communities is really key. Um, well, I mean, way back too, right into the 19th century where um, a lot of this Greek story, um, you know, has to do with people who are traveling through, um, the Latin American stories, people who are traveling through and able to sort of create a community uh, in the US to make that claim that our cause is your cause and um, you should care about what we're doing. And it's something that has been really, um, you know, I've spent, um, with the missionaries I'm, I'm working on, it's a slightly different angle, but I think kind of a similar um, problem. One of the, the questions they had, you know, because fundraising is always something that, you know, um, groups are worrying about. Um, how do we get people to care? Um, how do we get people to care both to go abroad, how do we get them to support our movement, how do we get them to give money? And from the 1830s, one of the things that became very clear to these organizations was that Americans don't care about missions because Americans don't know about the people around the world. And the way we're gonna solve this problem is by educating them and helping them to sort of know about sort of other peoples, other places, um, and through that knowledge, they will create um, those relationships and care about it, uh, care about those people. Um, and that, you know, their hope is that that's gonna lead to evangelistic um, effects, but it also leads to kind of all kinds of other um, identities where Americans are understanding themselves as connected to these other places around the world, these other people around the world. And it's, I think, really helpful to, to think about how those connections are deliberately made at different points in time by different groups, whether it's immigrant communities or if it's um, sort of missionary uh, work or if it's politicians who are trying to make certain kinds of arguments about what we should be paying attention to, who we should be paying attention to, uh, and whose pain is worth us intervening in. Well, are we arguing that this is only a, f a phenomenon of the past and that now religious groups mm -hmm. have a lot more say? Because I would argue that today religious groups in America have a lot of say in American foreign policy. Yeah. Maybe not the same amount as a military-industrial complex, but they, they certainly sure. have been out there um, railing for one cause or another. Absolutely. You know, evangelical groups trying to shape the outcome of foreign policy is quite, quite evident. Yeah. Um, you could talk about Jewish American groups and how they shape the relationship with Israel. Mm -hmm. You could mm -hmm. talk about um, uh, the evangelical groups that have been uh, trying to promote a certain type of, uh, a different kind of immigration style for different parts of the world, <laughs> depending yeah. on where, what religion you're from. So I think today, yeah. there is certainly a lot of impact of religious groups, at least in the way I see it. Oh yeah, and I think in, in defining religious freedom as an American foreign policy goal, mm -hmm. right? That is, um, I mean, that is absolutely sort of coming from, you know, how do we define religious freedom? If we had a religious studies scholar up here, we could have a whole debate about that too. Right. And whose freedom is being recognized and what kind of actions are being recognized there. And we now have, um, you know, that's, 
they're not, that's now being counted and tallied as part of um, the American foreign policy apparatus every year. That's sort of thinking about what are our interests, who do we care about, and how are they treating their people or others according to, you know, do they value how we're defining religious freedom? And that the U.S. cares about that is, is something that's really, I mean, when was that, 1990? Oh, it was in the Clinton administration. Right, yeah. yeah in fact, it's, it's a wonderful document, um, a wonderful office of the State Department because yeah. the State Department has an office that's charged with determining whether countries are allowing religious freedom. And every year they produce their assessment of the world and they send it up to the seventh floor of the State Department where someone else scratches out the countries that it's inconvenient to say that. So it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult uh, issue. Yeah, it's, a, it's a great example of, of a rhetorical move, the, literally the language, an attempt to measure it, and then the realities of geopolitics, power, uh, right, all enmeshed in that one, that one piece. And of course, you know, who's to say what religious freedom is? Right? You know, right. The universalizing of values, the, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, for instance, is an interesting story too. It, it's a global citizenship story, which can get us to that kind of concluding our remarks before we get to Q&A, which is you know, that if there hadn't been a Chinese philosopher in the group developing the UN Declaration of Human Rights, there would have been Christianity in there. But they yank it out um, so that it's a much more transcendent document arguing that all of humanity has a basic set of values and uh, and that, that, in fact, they should be adhered to across nation state. Um, otherwise, you might have had the embedding, as in the US context, of Judeo-Christian ideas like under God and in God we trust in the Eisenhower administration in the context of the, of the Cold War. So these things aren't static, and the language gets put into the, the things that we see in our life every day, public policy, the, the ways in which individuals interact. And then when generations pass, they don't even realize that this is constructed, right? So that's another element of, of understanding this rhetoric and how that then shapes other realities down the line. So sort of our final thing before we get to Q&A would be to, to unpack a little bit together this, this, this concept of global citizenship on one level, sort of do you buy it? What is it? Uh, and on another level, you know, um, if there are some pros and cons to that, you know, what is it worth thinking about in terms of, you know, as, as the blurb for the panel talked about, how do we balance the US or we as individuals shared humanity with national interest and security. And, and I think just one, one brief way to think about this is, you know, from all the remarks so far, a core tension throughout US foreign policy history has been uh, a tension between nationalism and internationalism or a tension between nationalism and transnationalism, that is things going on above or below the nation state level. Um, and, and part of uh, an, a, an ethic of global citizenship is about moving beyond parochial nationalism, right? Don't just think about your nation state. Don't just think about America first, as Polly brought up, but think about your relationship to things that are bigger or broader. It doesn't mean exclusively that, although it can in some contexts. And this goes way back. I mean, it's amazing, like Diogenes in, in ancient Athens talked about global citizenship. And um, I was looking at something along these lines. There were debates in the constitutional conventions about global citizenship, which I wasn't really uh, fully aware of. So like Thomas Paine famously said, I'm a citizen of the world, and my mission in the world is to do good, which I did know. And then I didn't realize that Governor Morris made an argument that if, you, if any of the people who, who are at the convention identified as world citizens, they would be bad citizens for the US, and they shouldn't be invested in the American project. 
that, that they needed to prioritize the US. I mean, this is the foundation of the US with America first embedded right there in those debates, saying you will be a bad citizen of this country. And what did they worry most about? You know, French nationals, British nationals, right? People being part of this nation state but having different agendas as, as embedded in it. And that's certainly an issue for our day. So, you know, as we sort of bring this part of, of, our, uh, of our conversation to a pause, uh, I'm wondering what you all think of definitions of global citizenship and if there's really something there to, to um, something sticky to help orient this question of balancing shared values with national interests. I guess I'll start. I think it's, a, it's recognizing that there are collective action problems, right? There are problems that you can't deal with on a state-by-state -state level. Right? And I think that's super important and something that we don't really think about enough. Yeah. But if you're going to have global citizenship, it's going to be, and you're going to have some recognition of your own state's self-interest, mm -hmm. your self-interest has to be involved with promoting something that can help everyone. So you have these problems that are intractable on your own, right? Like climate change, mm -hmm. like a pandemic, like a refugee crisis or something like that. Your country alone can't take that. On. So if you think about you know, um, major issues that we have to deal with other countries to solve, then that becomes, I think, something where your citizenship is global, but it isn't necessarily sacrificing your self-interest because it's the idea of you know, having the, the shadow of the future inform the present. So we have to suspend our self-interest for a short while, not just think about ourselves as America first, in order to solve you know, the HIV crisis or in order to solve, you know, the, a climate issue that is greater than us. So I guess I would say these collective action problems create a need for global citizenship mm -hmm. and solving them isn't necessarily outside your national interest because you have to solve them for us in order to meet your national interest. That makes a lot of sense. You're just like passing the back and forth. I, 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 I was just trying to be, as a good citizen, I'm trying to be polite. Okay. <laughs> oh, excellent. It's rare, I know. You know, I. Were your missionaries global citizens? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. I, um, I, can, I can talk about that in a sec. But I, one thing I was, as I was trying to sort of, we were talking about definitions and sort of what is global citizenship and what is it. Who is a global citizen and what does this mean? And I was sort of thinking about that, that level of, if you're a citizen of the world, how, what is your relationship to your own nation and your, you know, your national citizenship? I was also thinking about you know, where do stateless people fall on this? Um, mm -hmm. you know, can a stateless person be a global citizen? Or is sort of global citizenship sort of assuming, actually, that you, have, that you are a citizen of some kind of somewhat powerful state who can help you sort of see those larger goals that, that, require, um, that require help. And that's sort of, I think, where my, mm -hmm. my missionaries would be in the 19th century who, you know, very much you know, wouldn't have used the language of global citizens, would probably talk about themselves as subjects of the kingdom of God, um, but are going out into the world um, and are sort of, if we think about how is the Oxfam defining um, global citizenship, right? Um, social, environmental, and economic actions taken by individuals and communities who recognize every person as a citizen of the world, thinking about connections, thinking about equality, thinking about shared human rights. You know, yeah, they're, they're going out thinking that all people have similar, um, have the same needs um, and that those needs need to be met. Um, they are thinking that there are sort of supranational, um, supranational rather, um, 
causes that are sort of more important than individual state laws, this means sometimes they're breaking the law, uh, to advance their, their movement. Um, and they often don't talk about themselves as Americans, except for when they need the American state to back them up. Um, and I think that that was the, the thing that kind of was, as much as I find the sort of language of global citizenship and the idea of global citizenship really incredibly attractive and powerful and moving, um, I also wonder if there's a kind of power dynamic behind it that we sort of need to really be sure we're examining. Um, sort of who gets to claim that position as a global citizen, what kind of power um, needs to exist behind, um, behind that, um, that claim. And I guess as I was thinking about definitions, one, another word sort of came to my mind, and that's sort of how is this different than cosmopolitanism? Um, and is it perhaps trying to sort of describe something kind of similar to cosmopolitans, but you know, setting aside the baggage of you know, power and imperialism and racism that can come with cosmopolitanism? I don't know. Um, so I guess that's sort of my, um, the, the tension I'll sort of, that I'm playing with in my head about what is this idea and how, how does power work in it, in, in the real world? Uh, so I, I'm struck by the fact that we started off this conversation with a leadership moment. Uh, and that leadership is an important element of what's taught at this institution. And rightly so. And what I think leadership forces us to do is think about the difference between, if you will, the common responsibility that we all have as citizens or as global citizens, you know, responsibilities to be civil to each other, responsibilities to drive the speed limit, responsibilities hopefully to vote, uh, and so on. But then we expect other people to do more. We expect other people to spend their time in public service. We expect other people to lead, whether it's an elected office or somewhere else. And usually the people who we like to think of as those who are leading are those who have greater abilities. Uh, you know, whether they're, we, want to, we want smart people in office, uh, we want dedicated people in office, we want people with a good moral conscience in office, et cetera. I don't think it's any different for the international system for the United States, that the United States is but one of many countries. Uh, we have basic responsibilities as a member of the international community. However, like it or not, the United States is among the most powerful nations in the world, arguably perhaps the most powerful single nation in the world. Certainly if you combine military, I think, and economic power, and also political moral suasion power. And I think that there's a responsibility that Americans have to grapple with, and frankly, I prefer them to enthusiastically embrace it, that their role in the world is not just being a member, but also being a leader. And oftentimes, it's the leadership alone that is enough. I'll give you a good example. Um, Ukraine. Obviously, the United States has been uh, sending a lot of aid to Ukraine. I think if, uh, recent polling I've seen suggests, obviously, American public support for that is waning. Uh, but also the sense among the American public that we are spending more and more and more is growing. Hmm. Not true. Uh, it turns out that the European Union has spent a lot more money on aid than the United States uh, towards Ukraine, a lot more. However, it's also very clear from the way that the war began, or at least the support against the Russians began, that the European Union would not have come together to aid Ukraine if the United States hadn't said, we're in this too. Mm -hmm. 
that President Biden being willing to be essentially the lead dog, if you will, in this pack, allowed the rest of the countries that are smaller, nearer, to be able to actually spend more to support the cause that we all care about. So I think it's a good example of how moral leadership can really uh, create not just a wave of wake behind us, but actually can create, if you will, a tsunami that overtakes us if it's done right. So I gather now is the time for audience questions and we've got some folks moving around with mics. So raise a hand and they will find you. Um, and while that is happening, uh, I'll riff on what Jeff just said, which is uh, what that, that strikes me as in terms of a lesson um, is how hard partnership and collaboration can be in US foreign policy. It's much easier to go it alone. It's a kind of default setting. A unilateralism is a default setting. Um, it is also a, a visceral orientation for many Americans to go it alone. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one of my favorite tidbits about US war making is that the US had no allies in World War I. The US takes from 1914 to 1917 for the US to enter the war and uh, enters as an associate power. Never wants to uh, uh, put troops in combat under the flag of another nation state. And of course, winds up uh, negotiating a separate peace. I mean, you know, that is, a, that is a sort of fundamental way the US has tended to operate in the world. And you know, to my mind, um, it continues to be an enduring uh, element of how many Americans think about the nation's role in the world. So having said all that, I see a question over there. Thank you so much. This has been really interesting. I wish I had a recording of this. Um, They're recording it, so you can come back to it. Excellent, excellent. We covered a lot of turf. Um, Emily, you recommended a book, but I didn't get the title. Um, there was, I recommended Fitz, Caitlin Fitz, um, Our Sister Republics, and Ron Johnson's- um, Could you say that more slowly, I'm not- Our Sister Republics. Very readable, very it's good book. wonderful. Great. Um, and I think I also recommended um, Ron Johnson's book, Diplomacy in Black and White, which is about the early U.S.-Haiti relationship. And the Fitz book is the one that I mentioned the about, the Bolivarian- The Boulevard Baby Boom. Baby Boom. Uh, it's a brief moment, but there's tons of babies in the U.S. named yeah. for Simone Bolivar. Well, and, and I, went, I went to college in Ithaca, New York, which was renamed yep. at that time for the, because of the Greek the Revolution. Greek. Yep. You know, so. uh -huh. Names matter. Yeah. Words they matter. They renamed Ithaca yeah. at that time. They renamed so, Ithaca. Actually, thank you. It, the other question I had was um, you were talking about a very interesting document that was created under Clinton administration. Um, talking about religious freedom uh, and how countries were treating their people. Yeah, what is the Do name? you recall what the name of oh, that golly. is? Oh, golly, you know, I should, so one, we have a postdoctoral fellowship program at our center, and one of our fellows just finished her manuscript on this book. Really? So I've read that name 40,000 times, <laughs> and now it's not sticking it. It's the it, International Religious Freedom Act. It's something that's yeah. not something like that. I, I, IPRC. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but if you send me an email, I'll get her to get in touch with you and send you an advanced copy. Uh, Ooh, and wow. it's really, really good. But, but her basic point is that, like most things in life, I guess, uh, it starts out as a great idea and then gets really complicated how you actually do it, you know, and also it gets tied up in bureaucratic politics. One floor of the State Department cares more about their budget than the other floor, et cetera. 
Um, and the issue of China is really quite relevant because if I were to tell you that one of the actions of naming a state a violator of human freedom, or excuse me, religious freedom, was that we were supposed to impose trade sanctions. Mm -hmm. That's a lot different when I say Iran isn't supporting human freedom or religious freedom as opposed to China. You know, do you want to cut off all trade with China if you're the president of the United States or Congress through, through their authorization because they are not treating their religious minorities the way you would like, by the way, defining religion the way that you think it should be defined? That's a big question and not necessarily one that was in the minds of the policymakers who came up in the mid-90s with the idea that shouldn't we support religious freedom? Yeah, let's create an office for that. And I'll just say that that's sort of building off of a long tradition of um, missionaries understanding religious freedom internationally to mean that I, the missionary, have the right to go and evangelize you, um, which is not necessarily how other countries understand religious freedom to be. Um, and so that's sort of a, another sort of consistent source of tension in the 19th, 20th, 21st century. I see a hand in back. Hi. Um, my question would be, especially in an age of sustainable development, what is the line between U.S. leadership and paternalism? Great question. Mm. Thin. <laughs> yeah, very, very yeah. thin. Yeah, I, I'll, I might say non-existent. Um, and, you know, whether that's... Well, yeah. A problem or not, I guess, is another question, right? But I... It, it's, um, honestly, it's, it's a problem that anybody who I think tries to be a good teacher deals with as well. <laughs> um, because you want your students to develop their own ideas and learn from you, but yet you're there to give them your knowledge, but your knowledge may not necessarily apply to their world. Uh, I'll give you a great example of this. Um, the George W. Bush administration, which was not known as a foreign policy winner overall uh, throughout history, their greatest success, certainly if you ask members of the administration, was the PEPFAR program, which was President Bush's initiative to help eliminate or reduce the AIDS epidemic in Africa. Uh, you all paid for it by the way, something along the lines of $15 billion out of U.S. taxpayer money, saved, the rough estimates are, between 20 and 25 million African lives by helping to eliminate the AIDS epidemic, and by the way, kept Africa from collapsing. What's interesting about this program is that sounds like a good story, right? Uh, Africans didn't always appreciate the way the aid was given to them because it came with a lot of American values. Yep. You know, for example, in, in many parts of Africa, and I don't want to suggest Africa is monolithic, but in many parts of Africa, um, it's not a big deal to hand children or other people condoms. It's a reasonable farm, uh, health policy decision. When the American policymaker comes in and says, we want to help eliminate AIDS, but we're not going to give you money for condoms, the African response is, wouldn't you like to eliminate AIDS? And so there's an immediate tension because of our values versus somebody else's values in trying to do what everybody agrees is a good thing, eradicate a deadly disease. So um, I guess my answer in punting on the question uh, is it's embedded in any kind of foreign aid, I would think, that there's going to be a level of 
if not paternalism, then at least the fear of a perceived paternalism. Yeah, there are a lot of examples of that. Um, even under PEPFAR, the, each country still today that receives uh, PEPFAR has to sign a kind of anti-prostitution pledge that they won't be supporting prostitution or something or they can't get their PEPFAR money. But beyond that, I would say, I, I think a little bit about this relationship between um, President Zelensky and President Biden. And I feel like there's been a little bit of a push and pull. Like, I don't think mm -hmm. that, I think that Zelensky has been able to say, no, we don't want that, or, you know, we're doing it my way. I don't think he's been the sort of patsy in a relationship or anything. There's been a lot of questioning about whether we can have these weapons, and I know the United States has held back on granting some things, but I feel as if Zelensky isn't willing to kind of just go along with whatever Biden says, which I kind of like, <laughs> to be honest. You know, he's like standing up to him a little more than some leaders have in the past. Um, but some leaders have been, you know, willing to do whatever the United States wants in order to get, especially foreign aid um, or trade or whatever. And the United States is not used to being told no. Um, yeah. And it's, it's caused problems in the past. Yeah. And we can extend to think about you know, hospitals and um, uh, universities and other kinds of schools that sort of were the 19th century version of some of this, where you know, it's, when we're talking about healthcare and sort of institutional development of, um, you know, it's, it's a really complicated story where there's always um, gonna be some kind of you know, values at the heart of it that um, you know, are explicit or implicit. And one of the, um, I think, really important things you know, kind of the only thing we can do is just pay attention to them and be aware of um, sort of what those... Actually, can I, can I riff off a, into a political mm -hmm. commentary? Please. If I may. You said you want provocative. Yeah. <laughs> Depends um, where you're going. You know, I, I, you, you both raise a really great point, which is at this particular moment in American society, we are very much concerned with the language that we use in describing problems the way that the person who is enduring the problem oftentimes would like to be described. And you can think of any number of examples in your own mind where someone used the wrong word in trying to discuss something. I'll give you an example from my own work. Um, I, I've been working recently on the 19th century, su superficially, uh, and I'm, what do I call Native Americans? Do I call them Native Americans? Do I call them Indians? Do I call them uh, indigenous peoples when they're fighting with and against the American Continental Cong uh, uh, Army in the Revolutionary War? So I contacted one of my graduate school buddies who works in this area and said, what's the term of art? And he kind of laughed and said, well, whatever you choose is going to be wrong five years from now. <laughs> so just choose whatever you want. But the broader point, he said, is if you demonstrate sensitivity, that's what really matters. So when I think about yeah. foreign aid, or when I think about the fact that our nation has become very sensitive to language across the political spectrum, I, I think we need to sometimes take a step back and say, even if that word bothered me, where's the person's heart? You know, are they trying to, to solve the problem? And you can imagine whether it's sexual identity, whether it's for racial identity, any number of things, any of us will use the wrong word from time to time, or at least the wrong word as it's going to be perceived five years from now.
But are we trying, is the United States in this case trying to do the right thing is also important, I think. Yeah, but I mean, I, so yes, <laughs> and I agree completely. And you should read, there's a wonderful forum in the Journal of the Early Republic on language, and there's a great piece by Liz Ellis on exactly that question. Could you write that down for me? So <laughs> I'll send you the PDF after this. Um, so this yes. a really footnoted conversation. <laughs> you know. um, so yes, I mean, it, I think, it, but it's about more than language here too, right? Because of the writers that get written into the law where it's, mm -hmm. you know, um, and so I think that that's sort of the, the, you know, where we have to think about, you know, who is, and what interests are getting sort of added into this, mm -hmm. that it's, um, you know, you know, why is it that the U.S. is more uncomfortable about giving out condoms? Um, and that has real world implications. Um, and you know, why is it that we're, um, there's the stance on, on prostitution. Um, you know, I'm thinking about sort of, um, you know, US relations in Uganda and sort of LGBTQ issues as well, where, um, you know, the, the language matters and sort of what's in one's heart matters, but also, you know, because of the power that goes behind when the US has those feelings in its heart, but it's, it's um, you know, it's, it, it, there are some more real world sort of effects of, you know, not just saying the wrong thing, but putting something in the policy that, you know, can do real harm. Yeah. And there are other examples of this in other international organizations too. NATO, for instance, there are countries in NATO that are much more conservative on questions of, of sexuality, of, of women's place in the home, traditional views of a kind of nuclear family. Uh, and, and these are real divides within an alliance that's nominally about security, right? So it's not supposed to be about those core values, and yet there are fractures within it. And you know, I guess I would also say, you know, one theme here that's emerged is about the intersection of domestic and foreign. And you, know, you can't imagine federal appropriations and funds not coming to states without uh, ties, right? Without obligations. It's, it's basically how you get you know, things like civil rights. You have to tie federal funds to state action. It forces the hand of, of the states, for better and for worse. They can deny it, as we've seen with a, a number of states with healthcare in recent years. And generally speaking, those ones who have denied those, have, it's been a net negative for them. But, so you could say the same sort of Faustian bargain exists with most foreign aid programs, many humanitarian programs, because of the power imbalance. It's sort of the, you know, that, that core precept of, of how power is aligned and then how actual policy programs operate. You can, you, you can use the right language, you can, you can use the, a certain sensitivities, um, but those cultural values and whoever within a nation state has power or whatever party, can then operationalize them or even weaponize them, right? And, and really deliberately to do things like, you know, col colonial states and decolonization to then create uh, ethnic and tribal rivalries that, you know, years later result in, in wars and conflicts. Um, so there's also that dimension. Of it. You know, it, it occurs to me in this discussion that we've actually solved the problem. <laughs> that the central problem of U.S. foreign policy, that there's way too many foreigners involved. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Our day jobs will be somewhat <laughs> limited by this. Well, At least you know, most of us are starting. History, like we yeah. just keep on telling whatever happened. Right. Um, but I think, you know, I do want to, oh, I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I just wanted to sort of return to what Jeff was saying and just, I, you know, one thing that I sort of worry about when I start spiraling worrying about power dynamics um, is that that can stop you from doing something. Yeah. And I think that mm -hmm. what you were getting at that's really important, right, is that we need, I think we need to be aware of what's going on, but 
figuring out you know, what are the compromises we're willing to make along those lines so that something can happen and not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good um, is, I think, a real challenge for all of these conversations. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's not so good. You know, yeah, that's right? the other that's thing, the, right? The, yes. Sometimes the, the enemy of the good is that it's, it's still bad. Yeah. You know, and um, I'm thinking about foreign aid, and you're talking about cultural values and everything, but I'm thinking about, for example, some of the economic interests in the United States and how foreign aid has been for them. It hasn't really been for the other countries. And you know, I think sometimes we don't think enough about, about that. I, mm. I've done some research on food aid and how much of that is really centered around helping agribusbusiness, right? I mean, yes. it's fine. Then say it's an agribusiness program, but don't say it's foreign aid. The, the reality is that you can, and I think this is really true, you know, sort of kill two or three birds with one stone, give food aid out, try to give it out to the countries that adhere, align with your values, also try to give it out to countries that have burgeoning markets and so forth, but also make sure that what you're giving out is something that the, we have a surplus of that year. <laughs> and all those things come together around food aid, and it's very messy, but it's important to, to note. I do think that sometimes the impetus to address domestic economic needs can make bad policy too. And I don't think food aid is one of those examples, but I think mm -hmm. the enormous pressure to sell weapons around the world by some of the most large corporations in the United States, that pressure makes bad foreign policy when we start arming mm -hmm. lots of people and not knowing exactly where those arms are going and what, whose hands they're gonna end up in. So I think it can also make bad policy if you listen too much to some of your domestic interest for sure so i have a question that we received on zoom that's me back so i'm going to read this question that we have off zoom post-1945 global citizenship to the extent that we have any useful historical definition relies on an ethic of universalism but universalism is itself a concept that emerged from the so-called western intellectual tradition so, is global citizenship, insofar as it has been claimed as an identity, an American or Euro-American privilege, or is it truly a universal identity? It's a good question. Well, I, I, I broached some of those subjects, so I'll start and we'll see where we go with go this. It. Um, I think Enjoy. it's absolutely true that concepts of global citizenship come out of a Western intellectual tradition and have universalizing components, no doubt. Um, there are ways in which you can, cons once these ideas and terms get let loose in the world, then they get adapted, co-opted, and, and have lives of their own. And I think you find, so that there's ways to think about global citizenship um, as such as it is, uh, deeply problematic, located in the West, there, there are concerts, there are things branded with global citizenship, there are recycling programs and composting programs, all of which are, you know, in the, in the pejorative joking sense, first world problems. But then you can look to the global South and there are calls to action based on global, global citizenship to do the things that those sort of corporate interests have monetized somehow and branded that it then can set in motion kinds of calls for different ways of orienting those relationships. One of the, one of the things that I think of just riffing on this, this subject is sanctions policy. Almost always sanctions go from the global north to the global south. Uh, there have been more sanctions against Africa in the last 20 years than any other you know, continent, right? There are very few sanctions against the West 
and almost all the sanctions, I mean, even Jeff's hypotheticals where it's hard to do China, it's easy to do Iran, that's kind of how the, the, uh, the instrumental dimensions of enforcing values in the world system tend to operate, and they are deeply racist and, and centered around this kind of orientation of, of, a, of a Western universalizing and an imposing of some of those values on others. No doubt, all of that is true. Once you've let loose the concept of global citizenship, it can be used against the West, it can be used if you just think of it as an oppositional way, or it can be sort of reoriented and be a form of solidarity, I would argue. Uh, and I think you see some of that, particularly in, in sort of green energy programs and sort of sustainable development, development going back to that, the question before that got us thinking about paternalism, whether or not there's genuine collaboration and partnership is the essence of how much paternalism is embedded there. Uh, but that there are calls for that in this kind of orientation, do your duty as global citizens, as nation states, right, to deal with climate change, uh, to deal with non-proliferation, is a kind of call that, that transcends that, that sort of, the sort of binary that that tradition, coming out of a tradition, might, might imply. I think we're beyond some of that. But its origins really matter, and, and those origins are part of the blinders that a lot of the West has on some of these other questions, right? Abstinence only, you know, uh, sort of cultural monolithic views that don't take account of local conditions at all. We should be beyond that in, in thinking at this point in the 21st century, and yet that is, you know, is constantly baked into U.S. foreign policy, but also you know, lot, the foreign policies of lots of other states. So that's, that's a first step at that. Um, thoughtful question. Uh, do we have other responses or ways to, to think through? Uh, I find myself thinking, as I so often do, about Woodrow Wilson. Hmm. Um, Who doesn't? Yeah, right. Because uh, <laughs> I, I think the questioner is exactly right, that there are many ideas embedded in the international system today that have a Western origin, and that's good and bad. Uh, and there's been a very good, there was a very good book by one of our colleagues, Erez Manella, on the global impact of Wilsonianism. And he documented how revolutions and independence movements and uh, decolonization movements in Egypt and in Vietnam and in India in particular, and in China, excuse me, those four in particular, in Egypt. In Korea, oh, thank you, there was another one. Uh, in each of those cases, people within those, in, uh, those indigenous movements, uh, nationalist movements, read Wilson and then used Wilson's words both to inspire them and also to remind Western powers of what it was they actually say they believe in. Uh, and so I think it was a very interesting example, not so much to suggest that ideas only start in the West, but that they get morphed when they come across cultural barriers, if you will, cultural boundaries. And you know, obviously we can find examples going in, in the opposite direction. You know, the most famous probably being um, Martin Luther King's nonviolence program was clearly influenced by Gandhi. Gandhi, who by the way, read Wilger Wilson. So these things have a, a back and forth. And uh, my suggestion would be that the the greater the back and forth, probably, the better off we are. And the key term there is self-determination, the, the argument from Wilson that, you know, um, that, that peoples and groups should have a say in their outcome and, and that they should get uh, an equal vote, essentially. Uh, and thus, all these movements um, leverage Wilson against the West. 
It did not work out well, the, 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 right? Uh, it did not work out well for the United States in many cases, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, Ho Chi Minh was a big follower of Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't turn out great for either country. Other thoughts on the, this Zoom question? Not really got anything. Yeah, I'll take another question if there is. I see a hand see. back there. I think we have time for one more. Okay. Um, the last 25 years of U.S. foreign policy have been um, checkered, let's say, at best. Um, we certainly have not covered ourselves with glory. Um, President Trump made political hay um, because of that, and I think a lot of his support came from people who, maybe whose sons and daughters actually fought um, in those conflicts, um, but then um, didn't see anything good coming from it. You said earlier, I think you said earlier, that there is less support or support for Ukraine that is declining, and I think that's shown that it existed around the world in the last 25 years. If we step back from the world stage, um, who fills the back vacuum or what fills the vacuum? Boy, if you don't mind, um, that, that is a key and great question. And I said earlier that when I told my ever too long history of the 20th century and American foreign policy that every administration since 1945 with the exception of one believed the following precepts. That one was the Trump administration. And what's important to note here is that when a commentator says the Trump administration was fundamentally different than others, please remember Donald Trump said my foreign policy is going to be fundamentally different than others. It is both a criticism and a compliment, depending on one's perspective. But the fact remains. And this is, I think, a very good question that I would suggest President Trump was not sufficiently concerned with. Uh, that if you take apart international institutions like NATO, if you take apart international institutions like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or like NAFTA, you find very quickly you have to put them back together again. In the case of Trans-Pacific Partnership, there is, the Trump administration came to the conclusion in its last years that you know it would be really great for the United States if we could just get some kind of trade and political organization in the Pacific <laughs> that we could use to counter China. Okay, NAFTA, obviously, President Trump made a lot of hay on rebuking NAFTA, and the differences between his NAFTA light program and NAFTA are very slim. Mm -hmm. um, by the same token, NATO, uh, you know, I think President Trump was quite willing to uh, remind our allies that our treaty obligations are in fact voluntary. Something no other president in American history since the formation of NATO had said. If you recall, the central aspect of the NATO Charter is the Article 5 stipulation that an attack against one is an attack against all. Every president in the opposite of Taiwan, every president has said, oh, there's no question. You attack one of our allies, you've attacked us, period. With the exception of President Trump, who said, I'll think about it. Uh, and I actually had the opportunity to ask President Trump this myself, this actual question. Um, I said, you know, I said, Mr. President, that was really strong rhetoric. 
I thought he'd like to hear that. Uh, I said, that was really strong rhetoric, but at the end of the day, can you conceive of a situation where you might have actually said, one of our allies in NATO is under attack, and you've concluded they haven't paid enough of their NATO dues, that we would not defend them? Uh, I didn't quite understand the answer. That came down, I'll, I'll be honest. That was going to be my prediction, you didn't yeah, get the answer. But my point being, uh, I think I agree implicitly with what I'm understanding to be the underlying premise of your question, which is if we don't do it, despite the terrible costs, uh, we're going to find one of two things happens. Either nobody does it, and chaos is no fun, or someone else does it, and we define we don't like their rules. So you might not like the United States, I may not like the United States having to think of itself as a global policeman. But I'll be honest, and brutally honest, I'd rather have the American Navy patrol the commons of the world than the Chinese or the Russian Navy. My preference. Paula, do you have thoughts on this? That's no, I actually agree with you. I was just going to say that I felt as if, um, I think your question was something a little more, it, the, one of the premises of your question was that the United States is now more likely to not want to be involved. And I'm not sure that's true. I think there is a, a, a group of people who are right there and, and don't want to give more money for Ukraine and so forth and so on. But overall, I think there's still a sense that we, we need to be engaged and that we will be engaged. I don't see that as really falling off, maybe as heavily as you suggested. Emily, did you have thoughts along these lines? Um, a values vacuum or something? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, I think Jeff's comment was really mm -hmm. powerful, and I'm, I'm thinking about that right now. I, um, it was. It, really it was, was, really? Yeah. You did a strong, good job there. Strong rhetoric. You did a good yeah. job there. Um, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I shouldn't be that we, nice We're to you. old friends, so I'm just sorry. <laughs> um, you know, I think one, one, you know, to the question of sort of, you know, the, I mean, I'm a 19th centuryist, so I generally don't talk about the present if I can avoid it. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, one thing I, I do see happening sort of in a different sort of, Sphere of conversation about what's going on in sort of you know the American public right now is you know information fatigue and um, disaster fatigue and, and that sort of thing and I um, you know, one of my uh, wonderful colleagues at MSU Matt Pauly is a historian of Ukraine and um, I got to say that um, he's done wonderful wonderful presentations um, in public and writing and um, for years now and when I see him in the hallway he looks tired right now <laughs> um, and I wonder if that's part of, of what we see happening with Ukraine as well is that um, you know as that crisis has continued plenty of other crises have been um, starting up and continuing and so there is a sort of again that question of what are we going to pay attention to um, and who is which voices are um, sort of grabbing um, grabbing uh, the American people and sort of convincingly saying this is the cause you need to care about, especially in a you know the kind of media saturation we live in right now and the you know um, many years of really bad news we've been having in all kinds of places, um, and I wonder if that's um, if that's a factor as well that you know, I have no idea what to make of that, but I, I think that's probably a dynamic as well. 
I'd love to dive in for, for one, one final thought there, building on that, I think, um, which is to say it, one challenge of policymakers and one challenge for citizens in the last 25 years, but enduring through our whole conversation, is really making the case for why it, whatever that specific policy, nation state, injustice, uh, program, matters. And in the saturated media landscape that we live in today, it's hard to break through the, the noise of everything. And policymakers have a lot of incentives not to make that case. And to just, as particularly in foreign policy, to just keep going. Um, and, and so I think that's a real challenge for the US moving forward. Um, you know, to continue to do policy as policymakers think best, because Americans very often take their eyes off the ball of foreign policy in particular, and are much more interested in bread and butter issues, the economy at home, that kind of thing. It's easy to politic around forever wars, uh, but actually, the arguments of America First were fundamentally about you know, bread and butter, it's the economy, stupid issues, right? And, and that'll keep coming around. So when you get to the question of why it matters, something in particular, it comes back to this historical question which has animated basically all my work, which debates over the quid pro quo between foreign and domestic commitments and how you can make an argument for why the meaning of America, whatever that is in your heart, your soul, your mind, your rational being, is embodied in that foreign policy. And if you can't make that argument, you're gonna have a really hard time continuing it, right? If it's Afghanistan, if it's Vietnam, if it's, the, if it's those kind of interventions, if it's PEPFAR and it's being rejected, if it seems costly. Uh, and, and at home, even some of, the, some of that is, is, a, is the current plight of our, of our situation. How do you make the argument for universal healthcare or some other really costly kinds of programs of why it matters versus putting the individual responsibility on individuals and keeping that out of sight, right? Their family suffering is out of sight. That nation state suffering, those oppressed people, you know, I don't wanna look at that. I don't wanna hear those stories from Gaza. I'm not gonna think about Palestinians since the 70s, right? I don't wanna hear what's going on in Ukrainian villages or the hundreds of thousands of kids that have been kidnapped. I just wanna say that I don't want the US to spend that money. And if you look at it in the eye, those terrible injustices and those, those other things, then you can begin to make the case for why it matters. But it is hard work for policymakers and citizens alike. And it's, it's I mean, it's a real challenge in our, in our media landscape as you think that through because we're, I mean, it's amazing how fast, you know, we're inundated with texts and messages and TikToks and all this stuff. So how do you consistently make that claim this far? And nobody thought the Ukraine war would last this long. You know, it, it may be a grinding, you know, 20th century land war in the worst sense. How do you continue to make that case when now suddenly we've got Gaza and Israel? You know, suddenly we've got different kinds of problems at home. How do you make all of those cases simultaneously? Biden can get only one message, his administration can only get one message across, and as dysfunctional as the, say, House Republicans are, they can equally message why Ukraine, right? And ask that question, and most people don't have an answer. I guess I won't be so pessimistic. My favorite political thinker uh, had a good answer to this. Randolph Bourne, a, a real critic of the state in the 1910s, and he argued that the way to think about citizenship is to think about it as multiple overlapping kinds of citizenship. And he argued in this famous piece in 1916 uh, called Transnational America in the Atlantic, for those uh, keeping the, doing the footnotes, um, uh, that the U.S. had this unique place in world history, and I would argue this is still true if you want to be optimistic like Bourne, that there are so many different kinds of peoples and groups, so many different kinds of faiths and orientations and lacks of fit, lacking faiths in this nation state that people still want to move to it, just like they did in the 1910s, and create flourishing lives here. And so the challenge of having this kind of pluralistic 
society is putting yourself in the shoes of the others and, and really embracing the fact that you could have an identity as, as two students and not see the fact that there's race or religion in, in, involved there. And he was the first person to write about handicapped rights and, and disability studies. And, and he himself uh, had lots of, of physical challenges. And, and part of his thinking about citizenship was to think about the fact that you could have you know, more than one citizenship at the same time and operationalize that in the world. Uh, that it could make for a better nation. And he thought the US was the only saving grace during World War I. Um, and, and tragically, he died of the flu uh, in November 1918. Uh, he didn't even get to see you know, full, the full armistice and get a sense of, of what came out of it. But this sort of a transnational idea about citizenship has some potential, at least sort of philosophically, to help us orient ourselves to the suffering of others. Awesome. Thank you so much. Let's give our panelists a round of applause. of The Rewind, a podcast series by the Hounstein Center for Presidential Studies. The audio for this episode was captured by Mark Washburn of Gyrus Media. This episode was produced and sound engineered by Maddie Miller. The Hounstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University is inspired by Ralph Hounstein's life of leadership and service and is dedicated to raising a community of ethical, effective leaders for the 21st century. For more information on our center, our Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy, or our Common Ground Initiative, visit our website at www.gvsu.edu hc. To keep up with our current events and recurring initiatives, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, all of which can be found linked below. If you liked this episode, consider giving us a review and rating so we can be found by other podcast listeners. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you.